very, very exciting morning at Soho Radio with our guest artist for this morning, Sunday, 10 to 11, the Art Hour with Paul Fryer. Hello, morning. Morning from John. It's that time again. It's gone quickly. <laughs> yes, once a month we have our guest artists at the Art Hour to get an insight of their work, the tunes, uh, and what inspired them to become artists. Paul? Ah, uh, yeah. Good morning, everybody, uh, if you're awake. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was Motorhead, and uh, that was I played that because that's my favourite Motorhead song, and uh, I met my first girlfriend at the Motorhead concert for the Bomber Tour 1979 in the refectory at Leeds University, and she, rode a, she worked in a bank and rode a Yamaha 100 two-stroke, and we made out in the lift. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think I know her, actually. Yeah, you might do. <laughs> if you're out there, Sue, good morning. <laughs> so that's right. We invite visual artists on this show, and usually those with an aural inclination as well. And I th we should probably explain to our audience what Paul is well known for. So I think you've made work in about every medium going. But it's fair to say you're famous for your hyper-real wax sculptures and the environments you create with them. Yeah, that and the electric stuff. And the electric stuff. Yeah. It seems to have, it seems to have evaporated down to that, yeah. M despite my best efforts. <laughs> you, you started from music, though, Paul, didn't you? So yeah, yeah. how how did you know this development to become a fine artist? How did that um, happen to you? What, to, to to change from music to the visual arts? Well, um, I kind of approach everything from the, the standpoint of an artist because I always had that outlook, you know, from being a little child and. So when I was doing music, I was always trying to push it towards that anyway, I think. And it's, <clears throat> it was a bit of a square peg, you know, you don't really fit in. The thing about being an artist in any other environment is that people just say, well, that's enough now, can you stop? <laughs> that's quite enough, you know, and I lost several jobs like that. And I think music was the same. But the other thing was I didn't really get, I wasn't really comfortable in the music business. Um, it, it was, Why? Well, you know, I don't know. It was, I guess it's quite... Um, it's quite a tough business and the art world is also tough, obviously any business is, but I, th I find that I just am more comfortable around other artists. And uh, But then the music business has changed out of all recognition now, so I'm talking about the music business in the 90s, you know. And But then after that, after being a singer in the 90s, I was, I, I was a, actually a DJ, I was a, a transvestite DJ for about six years. But only three of them we wore drag. The rest of the time we couldn't be bothered. I, I, I didn't know this detail. <laughs> yeah, well, we had a club called Vague, and we, I, I mean, I'd been on Radio 1 and everything with all that. It was really, I mean, it, it was kind of crazy. It just blew out of nowhere, and that was my last foray into the music business. And that was in the, le that was in the mid to late 90s, and it had changed then already. But, you know, it's just exhausting, all that. And being on stage as well is really exhausting, and being on that kind of treadmill is very exhausting, and... Uh, and it's mainly nightlife, isn't it? It is, and all and everything that goes with it. So if you want to grow old gracefully, it's not really a, <laughs> a way to proceed. <laughs> but it was great fun. I wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it, you know. But I, I certainly couldn't do it now at my age. It's, uh, it would be a tall order. Let's yeah. go to Shocking Blue and send me. Oh a no! Place. Hang on a minute. Oh, Shocking Blue. We could play that one, but I mean, no. Let's play that one. I love this track, but I, I mean. <laughs> I like it. You changed your mind. Yeah, well, I was I changed my mind a bit when I was looking. Yeah, put it on. It's great. This, yeah, they're, they're a Dutch band and they were famous for Venus, but I really like this song. It's great.
So, Vasiliki said that you started in music, but that's not quite true, is it? You, the first thing you did was to go to art school. Well, that's true, yeah. I did, yeah. I was at art college first. And you'd think that shaped your way into music? I mean, why did you, why did you go to music when your mates at the time pursued the art thing? Uh, well, it, I'll tell you the honest truth. It was I went to art college. I was a dropout before that because my dad died, so I got, got quite into mayhem and drugs for a bit, and then I went... I remembered that I could draw and that I wanted to go to art college and that that wasn't really my first love. So I applied to Leeds despite having quite patchy uh, academic results and got in. And um, and then, and but then when I was at art college, I was horrified at how even then this is in '83 how how it, how regimented it all was and how everybody was like lemmings. They were all running for the cliff. Mm. The cliff being applications to university and stuff. And uh, it just didn't suit me. And and I got in a band and I thought. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be in a band instead, and and I got in my art school band, and then stayed in Leeds, and and so every, yeah, you're right. Everybody I knew at that time all applied to universities and all went off, and I stayed in Leeds in my band. And Paul Fry is where you met Damien Hurst at during the foundation. Yeah, I met him in, in 1983 at the foundation. Yeah. So does this this uh, acquaintance by the time uh, affected your uh, development or your development as an artist further on uh, inspired you or get more kind of yeah I mean I you, you can't I mean I think he's affected a lot of people you know and if, <laughs> yeah. if you know him he probably affects you a bit more you know but mm. um, it was I mean going back to then you know we were all kids really so we had a different but then again, people don't really change very much, you know. And I came in one day and there was a pig's head on my desk, you know, <laughs> <laughs> covered in a sheet. So we threw it off the top of the building to see what would happen. What and, you know, happened? <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah. Actually, they're surprisingly durable, <laughs> pig's heads. And, you know, there was lots of stuff like that. And there were loads of other people there at that time, too, that I still know today. And, uh, yeah, we just, but we just raised hell, really. We just ran around town doing all the things that you do when you're 17, 18 years old. And what but, what sort of art were you into then? Um, well, I guess in those days, I was really into like uh, quite um, aggressive, um, confrontational sort of performance, and um, and if I liked anything visual, it tended to be quite confrontational too, stuff like Robert Longo. And there's a lot of, I mean, it, it, this is the mid '80s, you know, so you either got with the program and had big hair or you were you were a bit of a rebel so I was like you know short hair leather trousers you know two fingers up to the establishment type and it was all I mean I liked the stuff that was more challenging so I, everything I, I was interested in everything I tried to do tended to go down that route whereas a, a lot of people I mean I'm not knocking it but a lot of people like uh, uh, liked land art at that time mm. you know, and quite um, quite gentle the quite gentle end of things you know and uh, it wasn't encouraged to behave like that at art college either. But, you know, what, what can you do? You, you, you have many sculptures that they have kind of depicting religious uh, figures. Yeah. And in uh, quite interesting compositions and quite provocative. And I was al always wondering where does it come from and if you believe in God as well. Oh, uh, I mean, my goodness. Yes. We've gone there with <laughs> Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> and hear the angels singing. Yeah. Um, well... It's a big question now, isn't it? I mean, the God bit, I mean, so we'll put that to one side for a second. But the, um, uh, I mean, I don't really want to be confrontational. I just, I'm interested in the, in the dialogue of it all, really. I mean, the fact that the whole, the, the jury is out 
on the whole Jesus story anyway. I mean, there's so many versions of it. And if you look into the early Christian situation, it was very different. There were two different camps. There was the Gnostics and and what are now the, the, the you know the uh, the corporate side of the church under Peter. So there's so many there are so many layers to all this. You know, you can you could go on forever. And it's obviously a really rich area to make art in because you're referencing historical art and as well also um, reflecting the current situation of of, uh, of politics and, and, and religion. So it's it's a fantastic thing. I, I don't think, I think if you think about modern life, you can't really avoid it. I think if you do avoid it, then you're probably doing it on purpose. <laughs> so, and as for believing in God, I think it, that's a feeling really. I think part of the problem with, with perhaps with religion and the way people see all that is it's become, it's become such a thing that we have to make a statement about and be, um, be so forthright about that it doesn't leave any any room I'm not talking about agnosticism I'm talking about the mystery of it really and mm. if anything I would say that I believe in the mystery I like that okay let's get to the next track and then let's continue with the mysteries of Paul Fryer we drive for cups on Saturday
Also, Paul, on all these shows we can, encourage... Sorry, can I just yes. say, that was Magazine, the amazing magazine with John McGeoch and you know Howard DeVoto and a fantastic band and playing a song about the corporate rape of society there. It's called Sweetheart Contract. Anyway, over to you, sorry. You've got a great radio voice, actually. I'm very, <laughs> yes. I'm very jealous of that gruff that you can go to. <laughs> amazing voice as well. I've seen Paul Fryer singing in the past. It was an amazing gig. When was that, Paul? What was that? Uh, I think a couple of years ago. What was it about? Do you know? No, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Was it, was it with, a, with a piano or with a band? With a band. Was it the girls? Were we all dressed as girls? No. Not that one. Oh, <laughs> I that, was, that, that one, was really funny. <laughs> we just played loads of girls' songs, and we all dressed up as girls. It was great. And um, I did. I, I played with um, I played with a band called uh, Holy Holy recently, a few years ago. Woody Woodman's David Bowie's drummer from the Spiders from yes, Mars and various yes, other people. Exactly that was. The and uh, one, yeah. that was really good. It was yeah. really interesting. I mean, I'll play a few songs later, but that refer to that. But yeah, Woody. I mean, to sing five years with that drum beat with him playing it was. I mean, I. I I could barely get the words out. I was so chuffed. <laughs> but yeah, that was good. It was. I mean, you know, I love singing, but I just like I say, being up on stage is stressful. And if you do it over and over again, I think it wears you down, and you end up taking to the bottle, or you know. Yeah, but we do have those facilities. We could have brought you a backing track. Well, I, th I thought you meant the, the drinks cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> we have that as well. Yeah. No, but we we stayed to kind of hallucinations, fantasies, and we had a small introduction about. Paul saying taking drugs as a student. So I was wondering how much this kind of, um, if, if there was an impact of, because I always have, I always feel when I see your work that my perception of things is to be challenged mm. from levitating uh, walks, cultures to um, glass uh, mm. made droplets. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know if, if there is an impact there. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think if if the last few years has taught us anything is that it's that consciousness and our perception of reality is plastic. You know, you don't. There's no one version of it. We all have our independent version, and apparently that's largely a recording that our brain plays to us anyway. So, and now we've got this theory that you know it's the whole thing's a, a simulation. You know, Elon Musk doesn't think we're at base reality. And the thing is, if you spoke to a um, to a Peruvian Indian about that, he'd tell you, well, they've known, they've known that for hundreds of years. You know, and, and obviously the connection there is ayahuasca and all these other sacred yes. rites such as, I don't know. I mean, there are so many around the world. <clears throat> Animals, oh, you know, they, they, they take their own versions of these things and used, obviously, wantonly in the in the uh, watering holes of Soho. They're not going to give you any great insights, well, beyond the obvious ones, into the nature of reality. But if you, I think you, in, under certain circumstances, yeah, you can, by taking certain, altering your brain chemistry in certain ways, I would say, whether, and there are lots of ways of doing that, you know, some more immediate than others, but you can, you can gain great insights into the nature of reality. I mean, I don't think it, it's like, to quote Howard DeVoto from magazine, who I think was paraphrasing Camus, who said, I know the meaning of life, it doesn't help me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky them, they get, they get to know it at least. <laughs> I think I, I look at a lot of abstract painters and you think, surely to see like that, you must have been chemically in, induced, induced at some point, yeah. Or drunk. Or drunk, yeah. So are we going to wind and dine? Yeah, this is Sid Barrett. I love Sid Barrett. Thank you. 
So that was Wined and Dined by Sid Barrett. Um, people write in and say that we don't do enough to describe the work of those we have on. And we always encourage people to go away and Google and actually, you know, there's professional lazy, laziness. Go away and look at it for yourselves. But I'm going to describe a work that I first saw and it's Vasiliki's fault, actually, because Vasiliki <laughs> curated Out of Our Heads in the basement Ooh. of Shoreditch Town Hall. Yeah. And you had a work there that was this levitating naked young girl mm. on a bed and i was in that when i first saw it i was in that room on my own and felt incredibly implicated and by being in there with her i felt very nervous and it, it was very viscerally effective is that the um okay before paul starts i have a story for this <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> because the security guard went to the venue in the night to check out and he hadn't seen the new installation yeah so while he turned so let's say to the listeners that it's a very kind of evocative very dark venue basement with yeah. around 30 rooms that you strop around and you don't know like what maze, isn't it? Yeah. yeah what it's going to be next so the poor guy turns and he sees a levitating <laughs> lady <laughs> in the middle of the night and at the beginning he 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 started he thought that it was a couple <coughs> having sex in secrecy on the, in the it starts oh sorry and then he realized that the girl was levitating and he freaked out and started screaming and running <laughs> so the next time, the next day, the morning, everyone was saying, Vasiliki, what happened with your installations downstairs? So we have amazing artists. So that, that's why I make my work. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> For those moments alone. It's true. I once made, I did these eggs that levitate above nests and I made one in my friend's house in Shropshire and it's quite a, a, a spooky place, Shropshire, and uh, her cleaning lady uh, when she came back, was crying in the kitchen and said she couldn't clean in the house anymore, and <laughs> wouldn't go in the room, and and then and she just had no clue because she didn't know I'd done it. I'd done it on the sly. I'd yep. left the house. I was staying with her, so I'd left it as a gift, and so she just couldn't work it out. And she said, actually, for a split second, when she walked in there, she thought, oh my god, it's true. You know, my house is haunted. But it was just obviously a little bit of magician's thread. Well, it's the same with me. I wasn't expecting it. I turned the corner, and there it was. And it just you can't. There's nothing you can do to resist that physical feeling of thinking you've seen what you haven't yeah and it, you're right it's the vulnerability of it too and uh the fact that she's naked and um it is very realistic um and you feel like a voyeur you can't help that can you, you the, it, it has that kind of strange and it's called at matins that one and it, it's sort of like it alludes to like um i suppose there's a bit of creepy balthus in there and a little bit of uh maybe Hans Bellmer and mm -hmm. all that creepy, weird sort of stuff that's a little bit unsavoury. You, you can't make things like that without having that in there too because it's part of our experience, you know, and to face that, I guess, is what those guys did. And it's uh, it, it definitely has that element. But to me, it's also, there's something transcendent about it because it is just at the end of the day about somebody floating off, you know, about somebody loosing the surly bonds of earth, you know, because we are, we're under gravity all the time. That's the thing that people say is the most amazing about going out of the earth you know is that for the first time apart from obviously in the bath but to be in the air and not feel gravity to not feel any weight, it must mm. be amazing in all of your works uh paul fryer they have um very um in-depth scientific knowledge i mean from magnetism electrics physics everything that chemistry i've seen a little bit of everything yeah uh, so it's it's something that it's your personal, you collaborate with people, but I mean, it needs in-depth scientific knowledge. Some of the works, I was really impressed. I said, you know, 
Mm. Well, you know, if you want to make something, some of it, a lot of that is driven by having an idea and um, and thinking, I just really want to make lightning, for instance. How do I make lightning? And then you have to you have to learn the ropes, really. I mean, you, you can either pay someone to do it and then you're not really going to understand it. Or you, I mean, as I did, you wind the coils and you... I got some really good advice from a friend called Colin, who's a really great physicist and a very clever guy. And then, you know, something like making a star on Earth. I thought, how can we make a star on Earth? And there's things like sonoluminescence, which are really technically difficult to do and don't last very long. But then you can do something like we did with a relativistic particle accelerator. And it sounds like it's an impossible thing to do, but there are schoolboys in America who've done it, you know. And so it's not... I mean, for me, that, that that part of it is is difficult, obviously, and it takes some um, it, it takes some um, intense study and, and and difficult work to get that to work. But the hardest part, actually, is presenting it and making it look half like so it doesn't look like something either out of a Frankenstein movie or or, or that's been cobbled School together experiment. in a back room by you know by some boffins. That's I find that really difficult because there are lots of um, limitations that are placed on you practically by the by the by the technology. But yeah, it's really it's fascinating, and you know, I'd love I'd like to do more of it. Hopefully, I will. Never know. Please do. 
That was uh, it's from an album called Electric Storm, and it was it was made by um, by Delia Derbyshire and her friends in downtime at the BBC in the middle of the night in the sixties. And uh, it was this album that, when I was a kid, when a teenager, I should say, the the older heads who were around said if you t- if you took a certain amount of LSD and listened to that on the headphones, you would never come back. <laughs> <laughs> And the rest of the album is really scary. I mean, it's really worth listening to. It sounds so contemporary. I can say I can't believe it was made in the 60s. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, so looking at you in your chair now reminds me of another work that you're famous for, the oh, yeah. uh, Pieta, the Jesus in the Electric Chair. Mm. Um, that's been a controversial work over the years. Are you, are you trying to shock with that? Or what, what are you trying to tell people with Jesus in the Electric Chair? It's been surprisingly uncontroversial, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been it's been exhibited in the cathedral in France yeah. during Holy Week, and I'm, I'm God knows how many. I mean, I, and I got I got the press file for that, and it was substantial, and there were very very few complaints. And when we're talking about a handful of maybe ten thousand people that saw it, I mean, the book, the visitors' book, was just. So I think, in a way, people view it. It ought to be controversial, but it isn't yeah. because it's not really blasphemous. You'd have to be a quite hard line, I think. Sorry, my smints in the way. <laughs> to, to think it was blasphemous. But because basically, I mean, in the, in the legend, Christ was put to death on a wooden thing, you know, and the electric chair is a wooden thing that we put people to death on. So it's a semantic fudge, really, if, if it's anything. So I, and for me, it, but that again, it operates on different levels. Uh, you know, I, ma- I mean, I made that for the first time in 1983. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was a pretty mongly version of it that I made out of. Um, bits of old wood and, and plaster, but and now obviously the new the one that I make now is I made a few now of, of that one. It's very refined in every hair put in with a needle, and you know it's very like very beautiful polychrome sort of idea yeah. of a of the thing. So it would look at home in a church. But yeah, it's a. I mean, the obvious thing is that you know it's it's as simple as that. Is that we were doing it two thousand years ago. Um, half the world's supposed to be Christian, and we're still doing it, and in Christian countries, so. It's not. It's a really obvious thing in a way. Mm. And then I found out after I'd made it that Lenny Bruce said that if Christ was alive today, if he if he came now, we'd all be wearing tiny little electric chairs around our necks. <laughs> which so which prompted me to do a, an edition with other criteria of little electric chairs around the neck kind of thing. But so yeah, it, it, I guess it speaks for itself. But you know there are other things it's like in a there. Secret society. Yeah, yeah exactly. Electric chairs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's. I mean, in a way, I mean, I guess. It, I, I, was I disappointed that it was it was accepted by the Catholic Church and they just loved it and thought it was great? Probably a little bit, yeah. Because <laughs> you think, well, you know, but in a sense I thought, well, that's progressive and that's good. Because if, if they can understand that, then they can understand a lot more besides and maybe things will move on. I mean, you know, we've got a Latin American Pope now. You know, you never know. Anything could happen in the next 10 years. So, yeah, I was happy, I suppose, and a little bit disappointed because, in a way, you do want to confront people with something. But I guess if when if you really look at the crucifixion, that is pretty horrible. It's true, isn't it? You've got to be going some to shock in a Catholic church. I, I, I yeah. love all that gruesome Spanish so stuff gruesome. from the you know, Counter-Reformation yeah, sculpture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you first see that sort of thing, do you think, Catholic realism? Oh, well, I mean, I, I, was, I was brought up with it, you know. I was I was brought up with it. I mean, when probably when I was under five was the first time I saw all that. And you, you know, and I remember as a child, you know, you always get you always draw, get drawn to Mary because the rest of it is so gory and horrible, and you know, it's Our Lady of Perpetual Succor. The idea that whatever horrible is going on in your life, you can go to Mary and she'll make it okay. 
because the rest of the Jesus stuff was pretty scary. But then you've got the, of course, the Christmas story kind of like regenerates it every year. Mm. So there's something incredibly pagan about the whole thing if you think about it in those terms. It's because they're really archetypal, these figures. And they all extend their hands in different ways. Mm. And those archetypes are expressed. development of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, archetypes are something that I think is, that operate every day in our lives and that we're, that we're really not that aware of. And, it, I mean, we, we tend to think of them as, as cliches, but they, they run much deeper than that. Probably shows you also how quickly stuff like that was just banked as being the norm. Because I think about Chris Ophelia and his Virgin Mary executed in elephant dung. Yeah. Or the sorts of things that were controversial in the 90s it's just think about what you'd have to do now to shock people Uh, it's a completely different value system and scale yeah you'd probably have to well you'd have to make an artwork that switched off Instagram (laughs) 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 that'd give that a shock wouldn't it let's go to Spoon by Can reading about you before you came on i noticed that you've got some quite distinguished collectors who have your work yeah. i was wondering what that dynamics like for you yeah a lot of them people that you see online 
they, 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 what they, people do is they, they, they realise that you've been mentioned in the same sentence as someone and then assume that they're collecting your work. So that's not necessarily true. Right. But, yeah, I do have some good collectors. And and do, you, do you know them? Do you have a relationship with them or do you prefer to have the distance? Uh, it's been my experience that my relationship with collectors comes and goes. That bec- and that is probably because their lives are as complicated as mine, you know. Um, and I think some um, collectors get really heavily into one artist and others, like, you know, collect bits and pieces by lots of different artists. And I tend to have the latter kind, I think. You know, they like they like to have a few pieces of mine. Although there are some who have got quite a lot of my work. You know, one or two have quite a lot of my work. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've... They, it's been my experience that the kind ones are brilliant and they do lots of things um, to expose the artist and they do lots of things for charity and they're really um, inclusive and make sure everybody gets drawn into the various things that they do. The best collectors are like that and they show the work. It's not just in a packing case somewhere mm. um, and that's brilliant when that happens and the worst kind just flip it, you know, when you're not looking <laughs> or they get bored of it and put it in an auction and it tanks, you know, and yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. So, yeah, but on the whole, they're great. You know, I, I haven't, I think people who love art tend to be, on the whole, you know, interesting people. And if, you, if you're going to commit yourself to things like that, yeah, you, you've usually got a plan. And do you, do you buy work yourself? Um, trade it a lot. And, um, you know, I have got a modest art collection of my own and, uh, the only, and don't really have any walls to put it on at the moment, but that's all right. Um, yeah, I, I have bought work. What I used to do was, if I made a big sale, I say used to because it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but what I used to do was, if I if I made a, a big sale, I would I would always make a point of then buying another artist's work mm. out of the proceeds of that sale, sort of as a way of paying it uh, forward, sort of thing, you know. So I would go and find just select an artist who I knew or a friend or in a, in a show and just go and buy a piece, so that you could spread it about a bit. Otherwise, it just tends to you know get swallowed up by by the uh, inevitable. What are you working on at the moment? Um, um, well, I've got a, a number of works on um, being made in the studio at the moment, and I did. I was going to have a show you see next year, but I've the show has been um, has been sort of uh, put on hold at the moment, um, and for various reasons. But I am still working on the works, um, and I've got about seven sculptures on the go at the minute in the studio, um, and they're various things. Um, I can't really say too much about yeah, it. Yeah, well. <laughs> in case it all goes wrong, or in case I change my mind. But yeah, there's a lot. I mean, they're, they are um, they're figures mainly. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, you know, that whatever I'm working on, I always want to be doing other things. And you know, I always think, oh, I can do that, or I could do this. But often it's financial constraints that stop that. You know, I mean, there's a, a couple of pieces I want to make at the minute which I just can't do because it's so much money to make them. So you just have to be patient. And then obviously what happens is five years down the line when you can afford to do it, you're thinking, why am I doing this? I don't even, I can't remember why I wanted to do it. So yeah, it's a funny thing. I tried to keep these days, what I tried to do is, hey, I used to work more from the standpoint of have an idea and then try and hit it, I try and hit that target, um, which is, you know, it, it can be disappointing because you're never going to hit it, actually. You're going to get near to it. But these days I try to just open it up and just follow, follow my nose and find out what happens. So it's a hard question to answer sometimes because you're not really sure where it's all going to go yeah. yeah so john i think this is a perfect time to do the one million yeah, no, question people, people are starting it's... to expect this but I, I i always say to everyone if if money was no object and scale was no object what's the what's the perfect commission or what oh. you know what would you love to make um, if... orbital artwork please 
Orbital, yeah. yeah. Something in the sky that just went past every day, maybe. Have you explored the possibility of collaborating with NASA? Uh, or a kind know, of a space uh, organisation? Well, I think until somebody invents the anti-gravity thing properly, you know. And that, it's The thing is, the payload's really expensive still, you know. That's why they make so, money out of these satellites, so much money out of these satellites. They're not going to want some piece of old junk that I've made. There's, there's a brilliant video on at the Infinite Mix on the Strand at the moment by Rachel Rose, where she's got a, an astronaut talking about what it's like to come back to Earth for the first time and gravity so weird he said your, even your earlobes feel heavy <laughs> you, know, you feel consciousness that you're being that, pulled yeah. down by your earlobes and I guess whenever you turn as well you'd feel all yeah. your body movement, like your all your organs and everything yeah, it feels like yeah. you're dragging a suitcase around on your, on your wrist yeah. I, imagine okay, that's like. I won't resist and I will, I'm going to interrupt you to put a little bit of Him and Lemmy, that was a, there were a couple of bad ones this year, really. I, I mean, there's been so many, you know, but um, him and Lemmy were... That was a bit gruesome for me, really. Uh, fingers crossed 2017 doesn't take away as many as this one. Well, there's, a, there's a couple they could go for, quite obviously, which they don't seem, oh, no. don't seem to be selecting for some reason. Well, let's not tempt it in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was, what was I going to ask you next? 
Um, well, we we had a fascinating conversation while that song was on. It's carrying on the space discussion. The other thing, as as well as gravity appearing newly heavy when you come back to Earth, is that you can smell for the first time. So that, um, in space, you uh, they, they filter out all the smells, and and so when you come back, your your nasal blindness is lifted, and you can smell things like the grass or just everything for the first time. So that's um, until you get this cold, anyway. That until you get this cold, right? <laughs> So our next mission should be to go to the university. Go to well, if anyone, if anyone can send Paul Fryer to space, who's listening, please do get in touch. And we'll, uh, for good, probably. We'll There's a few people who like, would like to see me up there for good, I reckon. So uh, I think it's fair to say, we've, as we've talked about your career, it's been <coughs> not been an orthodox trajectory and a fairly meandering route. Career, would, like I always think of a car going into a building when I hear that word. <laughs> yeah. Well, the worst thing is when artists talk about their practice as if they're some kind of suburban dentist. That's yeah. the that's the that's the word practice, I hate. Is it? Practice. I, I always I, it's when people come in and you've 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 spent like six months or a year making some art and they come in and they look around and they go, "Great space." <laughs> <laughs> I love that, but you know that's it's because people don't know what to say, obviously. But it, I mean, I think any artist listening will know that one quite well. Do you recommend the way you've done it? So having a life first and then coming back to making some art? Yeah, it's, what is it, the, the route less travelled. I, I, I think in a way, I think it's really important. I think it's going to get you one way or the other. I think if you try and do things in a really orthodox way, the, the chances are you are going to get sent down some, some strange routes anyway. But yeah, I would heartily recommend it to anybody that you just follow your, follow your nose, if not your heart. Because... Um, in my view, anyway, everything's enriched by having a more varied experience in life. If you only know one thing, like the inside of a, the head of your art tutor, then or you know, or the what you can pick up. I mean, I guess it now, though, in terms of what's available now, in terms of information, just the music we're playing, like a lot of the inf uh, music that I have played today might have been regarded as being difficult to get hold of or, or obscure when I was younger. And now it's all readily available and there's so much out there. So in a sense, I guess, and maybe there is no route like that anymore. Maybe that route's being gradually erased in the way that certain things around here in Soho and various other places and everything's being cleaned up. It's, I would guess it's increasingly difficult to go a, a, a more circuitous route. Well, I think it's really tough because an artist's trajectory seems to be so important. So we fetishise the next big thing and the next young big thing. So it's quite hard to come in and say, right, I'm, I'm now going to start making work at, at, at 40 or 45. I mean, we've done this thing recently where we've rediscovered painters age 80. Yeah. But more or less, the art world now seems to want a certain kind of You've got to hit this by your time you're thirty and yeah, have this it, MA. Isn't and it this. No, it's nauseating. I yeah, think. I, I agree. Just think, why can't we just? Everybody makes things at their own pace and in different ways. And I mean, you no, know, we could list artists who've come in late anyway and and made a really major contribution. I mean, it, I think it's this whole thing of doing well. What people think doing well is, yeah. you know, I, I think it's often prescribed by people who don't understand what it is to make art. There's a lot of it, and a lot of it's marketing. Let's be honest. <laughs> You know, and that's fine. You know, we have to sell things to make a living. That's the nature of the world we live in. But um, it, it doesn't it doesn't um, strengthen. If you were putting a percentage of how much time do you spend producing work and how much time to promote it, what would that be, more or less? Uh, well, I mean, I, I find it a very time-consuming process, which is a kind work, of necessary I, evil. Virtually not. I virtually don't promote anything. You know, I just don't do it. I hardly do it at all. I'm always amazed if someone wants to interview me or photograph me or something. I don't 
So if it's if you look at a certain work that I've made, it's almost certainly going to be ninety five percent making the work and the other five percent doing whatever else it needs to be done. I do a lot. I, I do a lot of accounting though, and a lot of moving things around, a lot of polishing glass, <laughs> these things, and cleaning up. You've got to be a good cleaner if you're an artist, and you've yeah. got to be a good mover, and you've got to be a good accountant. Yeah. But, yeah. And what what would you advise the new artists or people just entering? in whichever uh, age they might be? Uh, I think the main thing is to not... I think if you can get a different point of view of things that's your own, that's the point, really. You have to... You, you've got to disengage to some degree from what the world is telling you because the, what the world is telling you is is often so... You know, it's been so pulped and macerated and, and regurgitated as to be almost meaningless. If you want to find meaning and and reflect that meaning or, or you know even transcend it then you have to you've got to find meaning in your own way you know going back to the religion thing you know it was 40 days and nights in the desert you know you've got to find your own way of 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 contacting that that special thing you know it's like a it's like finding jewels in the dirt Rembrandt said I, I think it was I can't remember which one but he said I'm like a beggar and I peruse the carnival after the the players have gone looking for the things that no one else wants I thought that was a good thing, a good way of looking at it. You better believe it. Hawkwind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you very much, Paul. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this ungodly time and on Sunday morning. And thank you to all of our listeners this year for the first three shows of the Art Hour. We, uh, it's been fun, hasn't it, Vasiliki? Yeah, it builds up, I think, and uh, we really enjoyed our guests and the inside information that we had. And I hope that the audience is doing the same, having some creating some meaning about what we're doing. We have some more exciting names in the pipeline for the new year, so please do tune in. And until then, we wish everyone a Merry Christmas and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have, a good, have a good Yule. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, is there something last that you would like to say? Um, not really. No, just thanks for having me. It's been nice and it was nice to... And just to say that that last track was Hawkwind and I love Hawkwind. <laughs> that was recorded in Edmonton at the, Angel, at the Angel in Edmonton many years ago. Let me on base. Anyway, but um, yeah, have a nice Yule and, uh, and uh, hope to see you all out in the world at some point. Great.